Our Old Testament lesson this morning is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 44, verses 9 through 20. All who make idols are nothing, and what they treasure benefits no one. Their witnesses do not see or know anything, so they will be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a human, with the beauty of a human, to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars, or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar, and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat, he roasts it, and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm, I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it, and he prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire, I also baked bread on its coals, I have roasted meat and have eaten, and shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray, for he cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? The word of the Lord. We read Psalm 98 by whole verse. Psalm 98. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Breathe forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord, with the lyre and the lyre in the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roars and all that fills it, the world and all those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands, 
Let the hills sing for joy together. Before the Lord, he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world righteously and the peoples fairly. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Our New Testament lesson today is from the book of Acts. Chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, and then skipping forward, uh, 19, verse 21, through the very beginning of chapter 20, verse 1. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, And they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time there arose a large disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that, Gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and um, Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now, some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. 
and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there that does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. The word of the Lord. The gospel lesson this morning is from John chapter 7, verses 32 to 39. We are going to be starting a new sermon series in the book of Ephesians, and some of you will have heard this before, but but some of you haven't. Um, The pattern that we're going to follow in this church of preaching is a pattern that was um, made popular by John Stott, one of the premier theologians of the 20th century, and basically we are going to preach whole books or, or at least huge chunks of books of the Bible all the way through. In the fall, we'll be in the Old Testament as we kind of anticipate the incarnation of Jesus. Between Christmas and Easter, we'll be in a gospel so that we can see the life and ministry of Jesus. After Easter, we move into a New Testament epistle so that we can see the development of the church in light of the resurrection and ascension of Jesus and the sending of the Holy Spirit. And then in the summer, we'll be in something either more topical or systematic. So that's going to kind of be our our preaching pattern throughout the year. 
as we're done with, with Easter, we're moving into the book of Ephesians. For most of the history of the church, it was assumed that the book of Ephesians was written to the church in Ephesus. But we can't really tell. Um, there's a, a bit in the beginning where he address, addresses the saints in Ephesus, but a lot of the older manuscripts don't have that. And so it's not like in the book of Galatians where Paul says, Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Or in Corinthians when he says, Yes, Corinthians, I received your letter with all your questions, and now here's all my answers to that. We don't have that in Ephesians. And so the theory has become, in the last 150 years or so, that the book of Ephesians was actually an encyclical letter. That is something that's meant to be circled around. So you would send it to one church, and they would send it on to the next church and the next church. And that may very well be true, and that's actually good news for us. Because if the things that Paul is talking about in Ephesians, especially as you get into the second half of the book, the, the commands that he gives to the people in the church, if that isn't just for that one church, then it's supposed to be for the church in general. And if it's supposed to be for the church in general, then that means it's really easy for us to understand that the things that Paul says to the Ephesians are true for us today. There's also a lot of talk in modern scholarship about who even wrote Ephesians. Quite a few scholars don't even think that Paul wrote it. They think it was one of his disciples. Quite a few scholars don't think it was written to the Ephesians, but that it was written while Paul was in Ephesus during those two years and three months. But the theories that Paul didn't write to the Ephesians or that it wasn't written by Paul at all, those ideas, while, while not, they're not baseless, like there's some, val- there's some validity to it, it's not the majority opinion throughout the history of the church. So what we're going to go with over the next couple months is the idea that Ephesians was written to the church at Ephesus, as well as some of the other surrounding churches, maybe Laodicea or Smyrna or Philadelphia, the churches that are named at the beginning of the book of Revelation. And that's the reason why I wanted to be in Acts today, as we start into the book of Ephesians. If you have a Bible with you, pull it out, open it to Acts 19. I want to think about what Paul did there when he first started the church in Ephesus, what the city of Ephesus was like at that time. So in Acts 19, Paul goes to Ephesus, and there's a a small cluster of believers that he meets there, but they're believing in incomplete gospel, right? They're they're pretty much Old Covenant or Old Testament believers. Basically, they're, they're baby disciples, new in their faith. Paul sets about correcting that. And he works in in, in Ephesus for two years and three months total, trying to gather people into this new thing called the way. When he gets there, he finds some God followers. And so in verse 2 of chapter 19, he says to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So he said, "Into, into what baptism were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, well, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who is to come. And on hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul laid hands on them. The Holy Spirit descended. They began speaking in tongues and prophesying. So these were people who knew enough to follow God, but not God as he had been fully revealed in the person of Jesus. And note that note what Paul doesn't do here when he meets these people who have not yet been fully baptized into the baptism of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Two things he doesn't do. He doesn't say, 
oh, that's okay. We can all worship God in our own way. And just because you don't have the full story, that's fine. We can all say that we worship the same God. Let's all go find our own truth. He doesn't do that. But he also doesn't say, how can you call yourself a follower of God? What's the matter with you? He doesn't, he doesn't accept the little bit of knowledge that they have, but he also doesn't shame them for their lack of knowledge. He just very simply and plainly says, hey, you didn't know the whole story. Let me, let me share it with you so that you can enter more fully into this discipleship that you are yearning for. So he doesn't shy away from correcting them, but he doesn't shame them because of their need for correction. I think as we engage with, with non-Christians and, and with new Christians, we can all learn a lesson from this. Don't shy away from the truth of Jesus simply because we don't want to ruffle feathers or because we want to get along. But also, don't make someone feel like they are less than simply because they don't have the full picture yet. And the key here is that Paul was patient with these people. He spoke every day for three months to these same people in the synagogue about how Jesus was the fulfillment of Old Testament Jewish law and prophets, about how he was the promised Messiah that the Old Covenant pointed to, and about how God was a God who kept his word and sent his son. And even when people became hostile to the way, which the way is, is how the earliest Christians referred to themselves, and it's just an awesome way to think about um, to think about our discipleship, life, our discipleship life together. You could also, the, the Greek word is hodos, you could also call it the road or the path. The idea of the way, it's the same word that Jesus used when he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Or when he said, um, enter through the narrow gate down the hard road or the hard way. So anyway, people were hostile to the way. And Paul didn't just stand there and let him accost them. But he also didn't leave Ephesus. He came up with a new idea. He and the new Christ followers, they stuck around in Ephesus. They left the synagogue of God followers for the pagan public forum lecture hall thing that was the Hall of Tyrannus. And every day for two years, he and the other Christians would go there and talk to these people who presumably were travelers and merchants passing through Ephesus, he would talk to them about Jesus. And it's fascinating when you compare this text to what we just read in John. Because the Pharisees, the, the leaders of the temple were saying, what is Jesus saying that he's going to go somewhere where we can't find him? Is he going to go out to the diaspora among the Greeks and, and preach to the Gentiles? And in a way, that's exactly what he was doing. He was doing it through Paul, decades later. Paul was in the diaspora, in the Greek empire, preaching to the Gentiles every day in this hall of Tyrannus. What's the result of that? What was the result of people in the synagogue feuding with Paul and hardening their hearts to the gospel? Exactly what God intended, exactly what Jesus said to do in the Great Commission. Go and make disciples from every nation. Because as Acts 19 tells us, for two years Paul was there, but also what we know about this hall of Tyrannus was that so many people would have passed through it. That the, the, the message that Paul and his disciples were giving would have spread out to the countryside, to other cities, to other regions. 
And so in two years, Luke records that over two years, everyone in the region would have heard the gospel, both Jews and Greeks. That part is really important. We're going to come back to that at the end. Everyone would have heard the gospel because so many people would have passed through this city and through this lecture hall, this public forum. Because you see, Ephesus was a very important city in that region in that day. It was a trade city, it was a commerce city, and it was very much a worshiping city. Ephesus was the home to the Temple of Artemis, the Greek goddess of the hunt and the moon and fertility, and basically she was a big, big, big deal, and Ephesus is where her temple was. And the Temple of Artemis in Ephesus was so huge and spectacular that it is considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Centuries earlier, a meteor had struck the ground just outside of Ephesus and had the, <clears throat> the impact had formed this rock formation that people actually took to be a statue to Artemis herself. And Luke actually kind of subtly references it. And so these people thought that the moon goddess had sent a chunk of the moon down. It had landed outside Ephesus and it had created a statue of her where she wanted her temple built. So people had been coming to Ephesus to worship Artemis for years, and she was big business. If you've ever been to a major religious site and seen the level of tourist commerce going on around it, you might have some idea of, of what the, the idol makers in Ephesus were up to. When I went to Bethlehem a couple years ago, I was stunned even though I'd been prepared for it, I was stunned by the amount of little olive wood nativity sets that you could buy all over Bethlehem, everywhere you turned around. Or even think, think of a non-religious setting. If you go to New York City, if you're in Times Square or down in Battery Park, there will be dozens of vendors selling little statues of liberty. Now take that and supercharge it. Because people were not just buying these little versions of Artemis in Ephesus, these little totems and statues, they weren't just buying them as a memento of their trip. They were buying them as idols, as tools for worship. See, if you believe that your fertility and your crops, that is whether you can have a family and feed that family, are directly tied to whether or not you are properly worshiping this God, you're probably going to do whatever you can to gain her approval. And that's what idolatry is. It's knowingly buying into a falsehood. It's knowingly buying into this transactional relationship. I'm going to do stuff for you that's going to make you happy. And then in return, you do stuff for me. And if I get my worship just right, if I say all the right things in the right order, and if I show enough reverence, if I get it right, then you will bless me. So not only does idolatry, as we see both in, in Ephesus, in Acts, and also in the Old Testament passage in Isaiah, not only is idolatry dis actually disrespecting the God who created everything, who sustains everything, and who orders everything, but it's also really detrimental to your own mental health. You aren't doing yourself any favors when you make something that is less than God into God. When you make something less than God central to your life, when you look at it, as a means of your identity and your worth and your significance. Because ultimately, it, that is as useless as the man that we heard about in Isaiah. 
who grows a tree tall and strong. He cuts it down. He takes a big log out of it. He uses part of that log to build a fire, to cook his food and to warm himself. And then with the rest of that log, he carves an idol out of it, falls down before it, and says, you are my God. It's tragic. Now imagine that level of idolatry on the scale of a whole city, a regional hub. And you'll have some idea of what Ephesus looked like when Paul got there. And the people were making money off of temple worship, off of this cult of Artemis, and they were furious with Paul and his disciples and followers of the way. Their livelihood was being threatened. In verse 24, we hear about Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, or, or little, little representations of Artemis. He brought a, and, and, and that brought a huge amount of business to the craftsmen. And he gathered the craftsmen together, the workmen from similar trades, and he said, men, you know from this business we have our wealth. This is how we make our money, by selling these idols. And you see and hear, not only in Ephesus, but in all of Asia, that this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is a danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence. So not only might people turn away from this idea of worship, they might stop regarding Artemis as a god at all. And if they do that, we're all in serious trouble. And there was a huge uproar in the city because these followers of the way were saying that Artemis is a false god. She's an idol that blocks people's view of the real god. There's a great parallel, I think, between these worshipers of Artemis and, and, and the little old covenant followers of God, the little baby disciples from the beginning of this passage. Both of them have an incomplete story. The baby Christians were God followers. They, they had probably heard the story of the Old Testament. They had been baptized in the tradition of John's baptism, which was a, a baptism for repentance. John the Baptist, even though he shows up in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, he's the last of the Old Testament prophets calling for people to repent and return to God, the exact same message that every Old Testament prophet preached to God's people. But the baptism that Jesus was offering, that Paul was offering, the baptism of Jesus was a baptism into Christ, sharing in his suffering, dying to our old self, and then rising to a new resurrection life because he was raised from the dead. And when the God followers at the beginning of this passage heard this message, they were all like, oh my gosh, that's great, yes, please. But then you have all these Artemis worshipers who've been hearing every day for two years this same message. And these Artemis worshipers, they realize that there is a power in this world greater than themselves, greater than what we can see or feel or hear. They realize that there is something beyond themselves that is in control of the world. And that's not surprising because that's kind of built into who we are. Jamie Smith says that more than that, that human beings, more than being primarily thinkers or primarily doers, are, are at their heart primarily lovers, which means worshipers. 
So when Paul presented to these Artemis worshipers the truth of who Jesus was, we can see how it's possible that they would have acted just like the people at the beginning of the chapter acted when they went, wow, that's fantastic. We had no idea. How do we get that? We've gotten it all wrong. And they would abandon their idols and follow Jesus. But at least at first, most of them just rebelled against that idea. They just, you know, yelled, boo. And then they all got together and they screamed at the disciples, great is Artemis of the Ephesians for two hours straight. And yet, some of them must have listened. And some of them must have believed. And some of them must have joined this new thing called the way. Because the church at Ephesus grew big and strong in the ensuing years. And it was composed of Jews, that is, the disciples at the beginning of Acts 19, who were Old Covenant people who became New Covenant followers of Christ. So the church at Ephesus was composed of Jews and Greeks. That is, the people who were Artemis worshipers. And I said we'd get back to that. As we get into Ephesians, we can think of it in a few ways. First, like all good presentations of the way, the letter to the Ephesians has indicatives and imperatives. These are two big fancy theological terms. Indicatives are things that are true regardless of what you do. God created the world. Man fell into sin. Jesus came to be the redeemer and restorer that God had promised. Those are the indicatives of the Christian faith. Those things are true regardless of whether or not you believe them and regardless of what actions you take. And then we have the imperatives. Think of, think of the Ten Commandments. God says the indicative first and the imperative second. This is always the pattern. God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery into Egypt, who brought you out of slavery in Egypt into this promised land. Therefore, you shall not make for yourself any idol. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. And those are the imperatives. The, the, everything after the therefore. Therefore, here's how you should live in light of these things that are already true. And Ephesians is broken down like that. Most of the first few chapters that we're going to see over the next couple of weeks, most of the first few chapters are indicatives. It's a presentation of the gospel. How God is building his church. And then in the last half of the book, we get to the imperatives. Servants, obey your masters. Husbands, treat your wives fairly. Wives, treat your husbands fairly. Masters, treat your servants like brothers and sisters, not slaves. And the overwhelming imperative that we see in Ephesians is about two things, primarily. We will see this throughout the entire book. Holiness and unity. Because Ephesians has sometimes been called the gospel of the church. It is impossible to read this book and come out with an individualistic, private, me and the Bible and Jesus kind of faith. You can't do it. Ephesians says that we are all in this together, that we are, are members of one body of Christ. And that as members of one body, we are called to pursue a few things together. And those two things are holiness and unity. A few weeks ago on his podcast, N.T. Wright was talking about this book, and, and he said something as I was starting to, to prepare for this sermon series. He said something that hit me like a ton of bricks. And I have no doubt that you will hear this a lot over the next couple of weeks. Wright said that the primary focus of Ephesians is holiness and unity. And he said, unity is easy if you don't care about holiness. 
because you just accept anyone, no matter what they believe or how they live, and so nothing really matters. And he went on to say that holiness is easy if you don't care about unity. Because anytime you decide that you're going to be more pure than everybody else, you just split off from them. Holding the two things together, Wright said, holding unity and holiness together is work. It's why the the epistle writers over and over exhort their people to these two things and to hold them true at the same time. It takes motivation for the church to be both unified and holy. I have to pause here and say, when I was young, you're going you're to be hearing the word holiness a lot over the next couple of weeks. Now, when I was young, I had a bad taste in my mouth when I would hear the word holiness as it applied to human behavior. I mean, yes, God is holy and Jesus was holy. But when, when we hear about the call of, of God on our life to pursue holiness, that would just ring false to me. Because to me, the word holiness just evoked a sense of prissiness, of being rigid and frigid and looking down our nose at other people. But that's absolutely not what holiness is. So I, have no, I, I add this because I have no idea if anyone else had that same experience that I did. But if you did, think about holiness this way because you're going, to hearing, you're going to be hearing about holiness a lot. Holiness simply means devotion to Christ, discipleship, apprenticeship, trying to follow him and be like him. It's the twofold daily work of sanctification. We know that God is the author of our sanctification. We know that the Holy Spirit conforms us more and more every day into the shape of Christ, into the image that God wants us to be. But we also know that we ourselves are sometimes the means by which the Holy Spirit does that. It's why we can be encouraged to pursue holiness, to wrestle with temptation, to flee from sin, and to strive to do good, even though we know that God is sovereign, and even though we know that this is all ultimately in his hands. Because God is the driver of holiness and the commander of holiness, but oftentimes we ourselves are the means by which that happens. And so holiness simply means, it means godliness. It means trying to pattern our lives as much as possible off of Jesus as he is revealed in the Bible. And Jesus was anything but uptight or prissy or frigid. We're told that one of the Pharisees' biggest complaints about Jesus is that he came eating and drinking and feasting and laughing with his disciples. So to be holy, to pursue holiness, doesn't mean frigidity. It simply means trying to follow Jesus. And that's where we'll be for the next few months. Hearing from God through the Apostle Paul in this book called Ephesians as he commands his church, filled with both Jews and Greeks, who really don't have much to do with each other outside of their their shared belief in Christ, commanding those two disparate groups of people to come together as one and to pursue unity and godliness. And we'll be hearing about the imperatives, hearing about what God has already done for us. We'll be hearing about the indicatives about what our response to that should be. And I think that was summed up really well in our colic today when we are told that Jesus was sent to us to be both a sacrifice for sin, that's the, that's the indicative, that's the thing that already happened regardless of, of what you do, and 
to be an example for us for how to live. That's the imperative. That's the holiness that we're called to pursue. And so I pray that as we start to enter into Ephesians, that this will be a a profitable time for us, not only as Christians, not only as individual Christians, but especially for us as a new church coming together as the means by which God is spreading the way into into this world. Let me pray for us as we continue in worship. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for building your church. We thank you that you have called us to be witnesses to it, that you've called us to be participants in it, that you've given to us the, this, this compass called the Bible that can point us toward how you would have us live and that can remind us of where we've come from, that what you, of, of what you've done for us. We ask you to bless us this week as we are sent back out into the world to love and serve you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.